Hi, my name is Cork Milner. As some of you already know, if you spell that backwards, it's Croc, which has absolutely nothing to say today. I think we might have something a little bit unique here. Move my chair around. So I'm not facing the back or something of these people. I think we might have something a little bit unique here today because I'm going to talk a little bit about the interviewing process as far as it comes to interviewing anyone, be it a celebrity, celebrity, a personality, a grocery store clerk for a story you may be working on or researching. But also I have a guest today, actress Anne Francis, who will be coming out with me shortly. And she's going to take it from the side of how it feels to be interviewed. In other words, what she has experienced herself, the things that have gone wrong in interviews, uh, how she feels that an interviewer could perhaps express themselves better. And from my side, to see that it all of the whole thing gels into a nice interview so that the writer and the individual being interviewed can get everything that they want out of it. You see, you have to realize that in the nonfiction writing business, and we're talking about nonfiction here this afternoon, interviewing and personality portraits or personality profiles, as they are actually called, are probably one of the types of writing that are in demand by magazines more than any other style of writing. Fortunately, about four years ago, I discovered this. I've always talked to people, interviewed people for different books and whatever articles I was writing, but I never really considered doing just a personality interview, talk to a person, write a story about them, portray them, paint them as well as possible, and then, of course, sell that article separately. Uh, I was fortunate enough to start doing that, and I've been doing it ever since, uh, interviewing quite an array of personalities. It's been very rewarding for me. So, you see, you can do that to yourself if you so desire. But also remember what we're talking about today is how to approach anyone uh, for an interview. I want to give you a couple of clues on the thing first. <clears throat> One of them is called a tape recorder. This is really becoming a more essential item today with writers because it's so easy. You can take this thing along, you can turn it on, sit it down, it really doesn't make a lot of show, only takes one button, has a condenser mic in it, and the tapes run for an hour aside. So you've got two hours in this little Hummer right here. And nobody notices it there after a while. And you're not on yet. So <laughs> it is a little terrifying. We'll talk about that some more. Well, we try to make it so it's not a terrifying piece of material. Most everyone will go along with having a tape recorder in an interview due to the simple fact that they realize that the right thing goes into here. That means it should come out on paper basically the same way. Of course, which is, <laughs> which is who I interviewed you lately, the National Enquirer? Do we want to talk about that one today? Maybe we will. But you see the, oh, I got this thing on. Isn't that marvelous? So really what we're doing is we're doing a dialogue between two people and we're doing it with this little machine right here. Talk about a dialogue. I have no idea what this has to do with the interview writing concept, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Just for fun. And you have to participate a little bit. This is not a sing-along, but this has to do with the style of writing dialogue, which you end up doing in interviews. You write practically the whole thing ends up by being dialogue with a little narration uh, to kind of bridge the gaps between the dialogue. See if you can fill in the blanks. What if I said, what, chicken again, he... And then you have to add something like clucked. Got it? All right. We'll try. I'll give you an e easy one, all right? And then you can do this. Vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. I screamed. See how easy this thing is? Follow along with me. Uh, actually, there is a lesson to be learned here. It's never come to four o'clock afternoon meetings. Well, then, here's one. Try this one. Mother, mother, she muttered. Somebody got it out there. Mother. You have to think about these a little bit, all right. How about this one? Idiot, you've spilled my beer, he foamed, foamed, foamed. Somebody got it in there, all right. Another. Hmm, off the starboard beam, it's Moby Dick, he wailed. See, I think you've got it. You're getting there. It, oh, this one you probably will have a little bit of a trouble with. Uh, it's time to milk old Bessie, she uttered. No, 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 all wrong. She tittered. Oh, how about, it's a bomb, he... Oh, God, you guys, you're writers, there's no doubt about it. You won't get this one. Mirror, mirror on the wall, she... Reflected, very good. 
How about this? California, Ohio, and Oregon, he... It's marvelous. Nobody ever gets that one. At least my writing classes don't. How about this one? That's enough of that, she... <laughs> and it concluded, and that's enough of that, he concluded. So we'll end that now. Yeah, I don't know. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We'll go into it no more at this stage of the game. When you're in an interview, the nice part about having one of these little machines right here is that you can do one of the most important things that most interviewers find difficulty in doing, and I think it's very difficult to do if you're having to take notes, and that's the big word, the number one word in the interviewing process. It's called listen. You have to sit and listen. Listen to what that individual is saying. You as an interviewer has to think constantly. You have to listen constantly. File away those little things in your mind. If you want to, you can take notes at the same time because they may say something and you're saying, oh, I might want to pick up on that a little bit more later and you'd make a note of it. Usually you don't interrupt anyone. As a matter of fact, it's best not to say anything at times when the conversation drags down to nothing because then someone has to say something. And I'm sorry, Ann, but usually the person being interviewed has to pick it up and finally say something. Here's what Mike Wallace says on that subject. He says, the single most interesting thing you can do in an interview is to ask a good question and let the answer hang there for two or three seconds or even four seconds as though you were expecting more. And you know what? They get a little embarrassed and give you more. Okay. It's a, if you watch any of the uh, interviewers on television on 60 Minutes or what have you, uh, Barbara Walters, of course, they will pause, and I think you'll notice it. And the other individual being interviewed, it's a little trick, but you know, it works. The problem is that you have to listen to what the person's saying and try to get as much out. The problem is we don't really do interviews as a normal rule, I don't think, if we're good writers or good journalists, uh, for the purpose of destroying the person we're writing. Of course, there are a few writers that do that and a few magazines, like the National Enquirer, uh, but that's about all. I think we're trying to portray the individual. When I complete the piece, the interview, which, by the way, should probably only take at, at most an hour and 15, perhaps an hour and a half at the outside, because everyone gets a little tired, and you can tell it by the indivi uh, individual you're interviewing. They just, their eyes start to glaze over. The questions that they're be answering become very dry and dull. Hour to hour and 15 minutes is usually about right. If you need more material, go back. Interview them a second time if you have a possibility or a chance to do that. Okay. Um, Barbara Walter gives what she figures to be five foolproof questions. Uh, when she's interviewing someone that he has either been over-interviewed or is not responding very well to an interview. And I'll give you those five questions. You just have to remember that when you do an interview, you must prepare ahead. Research. Research the individual, if at all possible. If not, if it's a grocery store clerk, then research grocery stores. You should never, ever go into an interview without something that you're going to be able to ask. And here what Barbara Walters recommends. I don't have any idea whether these five would work. I rarely use them. Question number one should say, if you were recuperating in a hospital, who would you want in the bed next to you, excluding relatives? Have you any idea how you'd answer that, Anne? Let me ask you that later. My dog. <laughs> She'd want your dog. All right. That's a good one. Uh, second question, what was your first job? That may seem a little bland, but that's like saying, how did your career get started or something like that. It usually ends up by being one of those half hour later than you finish the interview because that's the only question you had to ask. When was the last time you cried? That's especially good for comedians. Jonathan here? <laughs> Perhaps we could try that. Who was the first person you ever loved is another question. And the final one that Barbara Walters uses in dire circumstances is, what has given you the most pleasure in the last year? Those responses. You have to think up your own questions, but I think you should try little things that are a little unique once in a while. Finally, I don't think that you should try to pry too hard or get too brash or get too nasty. It may become necessary, and there are certain interviewers that use that technique, but I would suggest you only use it as the last question because you may be ushered out the door at that point. Here's one that Howard Cosell uh, asked boxer Brian London uh, several years ago when Brian London was going to fight Muhammad Ali in the ring. Cosell said this, Brian, they say you are a pug, a patsy, a dirty fighter that has no class and they're just in there for the ride and the fast payday and you have no chance against Ali. Now what do you say to that? Amazing enough, Brian in this particular case responded for about an hour after that question. 
All right, I'm going to open this forum up for Anne Francis. I'd like to say a couple of words. Uh, first, I had the opportunity about a year ago uh, to interview Anne uh, for an article. Uh, she's an actress, of course, as most of you know. Uh, she's appeared on television. Some of you may remember Honey West, which was an extremely popular show. Uh, she has played opposite uh, most all of the major male movie stars in the business, from Paul Newman uh, to Burt Reynolds uh, to James Cagney to practically all of them. And she's done one other thing here rather recently, uh, which I think is rather unique. She's written a book um, called Voices from Home, An Inner Journey, which in itself is a unique book because it's not your normal Hollywood bedroom sexcapades. It's about an individual, the way that she feels about life and her life and the inner journey that she has had during that life. I think it's a marvelous and wonder wonderful book, but I think Anne Francis is also a wonderful person, and we're going to talk to her right now. Hello, Anne. checked your own mic. There we are. That's very good. That <laughs> That's the Hollywood greeting, you know, you always have to kiss each other. Are you gonna, oh yeah. But we, actually, we a, do love each isn't other. Isn't that a nice way to do things? Yeah. Uh, when I interviewed Don Murray the other day, he didn't do that. Did you interview Don? <laughs> yes, last week. He said, How's as him? a matter of fact, when I interviewed Don Murray just last Saturday, he said something that might interest you. He said that you, that he was your first date. That's true. In Long Island. That's right. East that Rockaway. Right? We lived around the corner from each other. Is that right? And now you live in the same town, Santa Barbara. That's right. I was 13. Is that 13 was, years old, yeah, your first day? I was 13 once. <laughs> and it was a Halloween party. And we bobbed for apples. Oh, fun. And I'm not going to tell... Well, <laughs> no, that was pretty sexy in those days. For 13 on Long Island. What we need to cover today is a little bit about how you feel about the interviewing process. And what I'd like to know, and I've always wanted to know this, is how friendly do you feel that the interviewer should be? Should he try to relax you, putting you on, or should he be standoffish? What relationship do you feel that you would prefer being interviewed? Well, first of all, I would prefer not to be interviewed. <laughs> uh, I am more interested in what makes other people tick I'm not very interested in talking about uh, uh, what goes on in my head, uh, only in book form. Usually an interviewer wants something quite controversial to start with anyway. Uh, usually they walk in the door with a basic idea of what they want to write, and very often um, there is really no need for my being there, you know. <laughs> That's true. It's true. That's uh, called more a slant. And, yeah, more slant. and more so today than uh, even 20 years ago. Hmm. Uh, so in the first place, I really don't care that much about being interviewed, unless we're able beforehand to have some agreement as to, you know, what, what we're going to approach. I think if an interviewer calls and says, I am interested in discussing this particular subject, uh, that helps to make the interviewee feel more comfortable because otherwise you're very, you are a vulnerable person. I would prefer any day to, to do an interview on television or on radio because then I know that what I have said, good, bad, or indifferent, mm -hmm. uh, cannot be mistaken. Or if it is, there is a, a disagreement uh, that will occur with the, the, the listener and, and with me, but at least I have stated ex exactly the way I feel. And I don't find that that happens too often with uh, a written interview. Yeah, well, it does it happen. I mean, there are some, some excellent interviewers, Cork Milner included. Thank you very much. But uh, um, very well. You were joking about the Inquirer, but that's true. That happened to me two or three months ago. Would you like to say what came out of that? Well, uh, <clears throat> they wanted to um, talk about the book. And I thought, well, gosh, if I do... Because I'd had a problem years and years before having done one interview that turned out to be absolutely horrendous, absolutely horrendous. 
And I also know that with the Inquirer, um, many ways you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because they're going to write a story anyway. And I thought, maybe I will be fortunate enough to have an, an interviewer who will pick up on the essence of what I am saying. Hopefully. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. So the interview was primarily, on my part, talking about the healing power of love. And the article that came out in the Inquirer was, uh, casts spells, admits she has used witchcraft, <laughs> uh, you know. Now he had taken one segment from the book, but had built it into um, uh, a horrendous thing. Uh, you know, you had the feeling, they had an old picture of me with Smokey, my huge black shepherd that I had many years ago. And, you know, you could almost see uh, candles burning in the house <laughs> and shutters, you know, closed behind me. It really, the whole slant was one of this this strange lady who is uh, casting spells. So it is, it's a very, uh, when, when someone allows someone to come and, and, and interview them, it's, it is not a comfortable feeling. Mm. It is not. You feel that in this case the National Enquirer came with this witchcraft thought in mind? Yes, because during the interview, uh, the interviewer said to me, has anyone ever called you a witch? And I said, uh, no. And that quote they didn't use. No, <laughs> well... <laughs> But he was trying to get into that, that slant. Okay, how about an interviewer that comes in and is uh, extremely over-friendly? I mean, uh, bounding around and uh, basically trying to be old buddy-buddy, you know. Hi, Ann, baby, how you doing, you know? Well, then it becomes my interviewing him. Because I'm intrigued with what makes him <laughs> bounce and do all of these things. And I, for the first half hour ends up with... I, it's very tricky. Because I usually want to interview the interviewer. I, I think I remember when I talked to you, I did get to ask most all the I, questions. Well, I, I got a lot of answers out of you, too. <laughs> I have found, you know, recently uh, I, I found the answer to the interviewer who comes with the tape recorder. All right. I have one, too. Uh, that's a good idea. A lot of uh, and I think that, that every everyone who is interviewed should. I didn't and see I'm the tape recorder. Where'd you, where'd you that. put that? I'm going to continue to do that from now on. Do you do that for protection? I I'm going to. Mm -hmm. It is very quite easy, of course, in writing the interview afterwards to take uh, anyone out of context. You sure. can do that by using their own words. You put an ellipses in here and there, and you can make the whole sound thing sound differently. I don't think that, of course, is what the writers should do. They should try to be a little bit more honest. I mean, after all, what's the purpose of that? You talked a little bit uh, about your book, and I want to talk some uh, more about <coughs> it. What originally gave you the impetus um, to write this book, and why now? Well, uh... It, um, it started in bits and pieces over the years. As a matter of fact, uh, when, I, when I put it together, it was kind of an, an odd thing that happened to me that helped me put it together. But uh, I had written bits of poetry that had come to me at certain times in my life. I had been speaking for a number of years uh, at uh, holistic centers and... Uh, um, doing relatively upbeat, inspirational type of uh, lectures and talks. And people would start to come up to me and say, uh, where's your book? And so I thought, well, maybe it's time to kind of put it all together. So that's how it started. Um, I was not interested so much in the Hollywood aspect. I feel every one of us on this planet um, comes in with certain problems, certain experiences, and a road that uh, we take. My basic belief is we, we are all going to end up on the same road, the same path, that there is definitely a direction and tapestry that takes place. So the, the book was not to try to tell anyone else how to think. The book, I felt, if I, if I was going to put it together, was one that perhaps could encourage other people to have um, a greater self-reliance, uh, not to give up their authority, their own inner authority, too quickly. Um, so often we feel that everyone else out there has all of, 
all of the answers. Um, and we tend to neglect the, the miracle of our own being and the wholeness and soundness of our own being and the ability that is there to, to heal us, uh, that is there within us, uh, comes forth. And it comes forth in many different ways. Uh, some of the experiences I've had in life, uh, I have not chosen, uh, none of us has, uh, but I'm speaking of psychic things, uh, the poltergeist experience. Um, those are not things I would have chosen nor that I delve into. However, these things taught me uh, much. And I know that 15 or 20 years ago, I could not have discussed any of these things um, in, a, in a book without being considered really a weirdo. Yeah. But I think today that almost everyone admits that uh, if he or she has not had a miracle, there's somebody pretty close by who, who whom they know who, who has. Um, there, there are just a, a lot of in, in, incredible aspects of, of life that we are, that we are beginning to open to and share with each other at this time, and I think it's a very healthy thing that, that we are able to do it. But primarily, the reason for the book was to encourage other people to have a greater faith uh, in, in themselves. Of course, we all know as writers here, we have certain problems in just putting the, the words on paper. You had expressed all of these thoughts that you finally did in your book, of course, uh, verbally through lectures and talking to other people. Did you find it difficult to finally write these things down? Well, getting the format, yes. <laughs> um, because I did have bits of poetry that were saying specific things. I did have uh, a, a chronology taking place uh, of the events, because I, I started as a child in, in the business. I started at six uh, in New York, so certainly what was going on on the outside was influencing a great deal of what was happening to me uh, on the inside, yet it was not a Hollywood... Um, not to be a Hollywood book. And then there were the areas where I wanted to share uh, the insights that had come to me. So we had three things going. We, we had sort of the chronology of, of, of show business as, as a backdrop, the different um, periods where certain inspiration or certain horrendous things uh, happened, and little bits of poetry. And I found that the, uh, the answer uh, for me, finally, was to have the poetry bring these, these pieces together and hopefully blend them. So it's an odd style. Yeah, there's been a variety of response to your book, uh, most of it favorable, of course, because of the fact that it isn't uh, a chronology of, uh, which are typical of the Hollywood uh, biographies, a chronology of uh, bedroom farces and what have you. Um, however, have you received some response from people that uh, didn't agree with the way you wrote the book, that they would have had more of your life story included as far as yeah. the outside? Uh, primarily, most publishers want that. Uh, they they want to know who did what and where and and uh, and and how uh, that that sells. So you had a little reluctance from some publishers as far as publishing yeah, in the business. But that, you were rejected like the rest of us. Oh sure, yeah. but that uh, I don't think that's that's important. I think that each each person must express who and what um, they are. I, I I think if you're trying to write for somebody else, then you're in, then 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 there's no more fun. Mm. There's no more spontaneity. That's what I loved about. Um, uh, Mr. Hillerman's talking last night, the fact, uh, uh, these wonderful inspirations that, that, that came to him, the, the other pair of eyes in the back of the car and uh, uh, the, you know, the windmill, um, the, the different things that, that, that helped him out of the situation, uh, the spontaneity, the, the uh, allowing the inner part of him to be the, 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 the co-writer, uh, that to me is the, the excitement of writing. It's, it's, it's letting the inspiration <clears throat> come through and, and, and handle the problems for you, bring it together. Then you felt when you wrote the book that a lot of this was not necessarily an analytical concept. You were really, as we call it here, developing a right brain experience from mm -hmm, uh, your definitely. writing. Mostly because, you, well, you call your book an inner journey, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. that in itself would suggest uh, or that the muse hit you when you wrote it. That's the fun, you see. when that happens. So it wasn't yeah. hard to write? 
Uh, yeah, there, there were times when it was very hard. There were times when it, uh, when I, you know, realized I had to kind of cut down a lot of stuff and make it short. I like to make it as uh, concise as possible. I don't like to wander on and on. The book also not has not in some, that format. Yeah, has some marvelous illustrations, uh, drawings, of course. Uh, who did those for you, and how did that? Chris come Nickens. About? Chris Nickens uh, was a fan who started writing to me when he was fifteen, and that's quite a quite a number of years ago now. <clears throat> and um, he would send me sketches from photos uh, that he would see in magazines, hmm. and uh, so when we were putting the book together. Uh, I, the editor originally wanted to have a bunch of uh, glossy photographs in the center, and I said, oh, please, don't, don't, let's not do that, that format, you know, and here I am with. Uh, what, I, what I wanted was to have uh, photos from the different periods uh, of, of my life, starting with when I was four on, on up. And I said, what I would like to do and this thought came to my mind uh, during sleep one night, I woke up with it, was to have sketches done of the photographs rather than just, you know, shiny prints. And I was able to find Chris and contacted him, and he said he would delighted, be delighted to do them for me. And I think he did a beautiful job. Oh, the photographs in the book are marvelous. They're, oops, excuse me, sir. Uh, they're almost lifelike in itself in some of them. Uh, yeah, I realize that you're all a little far put on your glasses, folks. <laughs> not too many of you can see way back there. But they really are marvelous, and I think it's a unique. The book in itself is really rather refreshing and, and unique, uh, although there are photos on the back for those who desire that. The publisher right, finally right, decided right. we have yeah, to. Also, I, as, a, as a writer, I'm kind of interested just in the mechanics of the book. This is a rather unique. It's softbound, but it has a dust jacket, which you don't see too much um, in the business. And I thought that was a unique kind of thing. What do they call that? A trade? Uh, trade paperback, tra which trade is paperback. pretty solid by now. Yeah. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'd like to be able to open up now the, the floor uh, for questions about the interviewing process, questions directly to Anne, uh, questions about her book. Uh, Questions about Santa Barbara, almost anything. If anybody has, I'll repeat the question so we can all hear them. So, yes, sir. Yes, uh, I'd like to ask you, Anna, being an actress, I know that takes quite a commitment from you, and being a writer takes a lot of commitment. Oh, Wait a minute, uh, so everybody here, how do you juggle your two careers now, writing and acting? Well, when I was working on the book, I had uh, the, the um, fortunate circumstance, when, I, when the book was sold from a, a number of chapters that had been written, I went to Canada to do a play. And uh, I wrote all day, which was, you know, a lot of introverting. <clears throat> and at night, I had the opportunity to get out on stage and uh, play a, a, a farce comedy. So uh, it was a, a, a wonderful blending for me to be able to, you know, let out at night because that, it, it can be extremely confining when you are trying to discipline yourself to just stay there. Of course, when I came back to Santa Barbara, I spent another month up in the study, um, still still inside working uh, for a lot of hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, at least for me, once it all sort of came together, how it was to come together, because I had bits and pieces, um, then the biggest problem was over, once I had figured out how all of these were to come together. Mm. Had a question here? How long did it take to write the book? It, it's, it was over a period of years, really, because uh, the, the first poem that's in, in the beginning of the book, um, Amnesia, came to me uh, when I was uh, working on a, a, a film in, in Utah, and I had gone to my dressing room and I was just being very, very quiet and a certain thing kind of came through to me that made sense to me and that poem just came out. I, the last poem in the book, which ties in with the first one, um, came to me when I was um, driving to pick up my daughter from school here in Santa Barbara just about two weeks before the the book was in the publisher's hands to be to be finished. Um, Kiss a Frog uh, came to me two or three years ago. Um, the that's uh, the name of one of the poems. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the name of one of the chapters. Uh, uh, and uh, the one on acting, um, I 
started about uh, four years ago. It came to me and I wrote it down and then put it together later. So it, it is over quite a period of time. Right now I have a huge manila envelope filled with bits and pieces of things that eventually will come together, I hope. So you are planning <coughs> on doing something else? You're going to write guess. something I guess. You know else? what I would... Uh, well... What? No. I want to write... I want to write a, a, a book like Phyllis Gebauer's new book, <laughs> which isn't published yet and is fantastic, and it's called Solinaria. And it, it, it will make the most incredible movie. It's, oh, it's metaphysical, and it's, um, it, it has, oh, all kinds of wonderful imagery, and uh, it's, it's a great plot. I, I have sort of an idea in my head for, I guess what you would call a mystical or metaphysical piece of fiction. Hmm. Marvelous. Get started. Be fun. Questions? Here's the problem. It's like any style of writing. Uh, how, do you get, how do you get the first interview that you do? In other words, uh, do you query a magazine? Do you query a publicist? Uh, you do all of the above. You do anything that you can. If you know of someone that is somewhere that you want to interview, you can go through who's who and get an address. Uh, you can try agencies in... Oh, Barney always says, the way you get people is you call somebody in Los Angeles. And they'll lead you to somebody else, and finally they'll lead you. And I've had that problem, too. And, of course, I've seen people uh, here in Santa Barbara that I like to interview, and I just walk up to them to get, you know, I'm not going to interview you now, but I'd like to have your address, you know, telephone number two, please. Now, they're a little bit... What I do when I discover the name of a person uh, and finally get their address through the variety of uh, publicists or agents or... Uh, production companies or whatever that have ha last used them, I send them a letter, a copy of my work, uh, and state that I would like to interview. And I always add one other thing, and I think this is important, although it's terrifying, and most older journalists who have done this for a long time in their lives would say, that's the silliest thing you've ever done, and I can't imagine why you would do it. Uh, but I would not have got the interview with Don Murray recently had I not said this in the letter. I always state that when I finish writing the manuscript, I will send you a copy of it before it goes to the editor so that you will be able to make any corrections you want. Frightening thing to do, but what happens? It gets you the interview a lot of times, and secondly, it has a tendency to relax the person that you're going to interview. And I think that's one of the things that an interviewer has to do. He has to try and relax. Amazing enough, you may, oh my goodness, you're going to go and you're going to interview this personality or this celebrity, and you are afraid. But you have to appear calm, because it's one of your problems to attempt to, if at all possible, relax that personality. Uh, I can't give you any good way to do it, but uh, if you see Steve Martin walking down the street like I did, I just went up to him and said, hi, are you Jonathan Winters? Yeah. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, that's almost funny. <laughs> so those are how you get your interviews. Yes. I think also, I, that's, a, that's a very good point, Cork, the one of saying that you will uh, let the interviewee uh, see the article. Because nine times out of ten, the, um, the interviewee is, especially if they've been in the business for a while, um, the interviewee is not going to be that picky about everything. They just aren't, you know, because they, they realize that uh, the writer has to have some some leeway. It's only usually if, if something is wrong chronologically uh, or if the writer says that you're a rotten, awful person, of course, you're not going to be pleased with that. But uh, generally, it shows good intent, and I think it does make for an interview being uh, much more relaxed. And I think also an interviewee has to feel that the interviewer really likes him okay. or her. I think that's an important I thing. I think that's one of the most important things we can bring out. You have to like the person you're interviewing. One of the ways that you can do that, or at least set the stage for that, as I do, when you walk into a home, or I generally recommend if you're going to interview anyone, try to do it in their own space. They are more comfortable, and so are you, and you're going to be able to see the surroundings that they live in and help you. When I walk up to the house, I try to start observing things. Do they have a rose garden? Are they interested in gardening? When I walk into the house, I try to be as nice as I possibly can without being overly friendly, and I look around 
around, and I try to discern some interest. When I interviewed uh, Dame Judith Anderson, as soon as they walked in her house, I noticed she had this marvelous display of uh, Delft, Delftware, what is it? Delft, the blue and white stuff? Delft, yeah. Delft. Uh, she had this, so the first thing I said, oh boy, is she interested in that? So I started talking about that. We talked about that for a half an hour. I didn't turn on the tape recorder. By the time a half hour was through, she was offering me a martini. You know, we were in good shape by then, and I got a marvelous interview out of her, uh, and a real in-depth, uh, some beautiful material came out of it. But discovering what she was interested in relaxed her. Yes? That's a good point. An assigned interview, that's a little different. I, was, I have done interviews that have been assigned and I have still let the individual. The thing is, I'm not out to crucify anybody that I interview. I'm trying to paint a portrait of that person. I'm trying to be extremely perceptive, uh, see if I can get inside them as much as possible and paint a nice picture of that individual. Not a piece of fluff but a personality portrait is what I call them. So I'm not afraid to show it to them. And the editors I work with know that I do this, and they don't seem to be afraid of it either. And I have never, so far, had any serious critical problems, uh, usually just a few minor corrections. That's all. Yes. Yes, sir. Okay, putting that on paper, do you find that it's easier to do this uh, through your own eyes, or do you use quotes from them? All right, there's, there's two types of interviews. We'll cover that briefly. There's a playboy question and answer style of interview, and then there is the profile. I'm really speaking about the profile. Uh, to do a question and answer interview really is more of an editing process, I think, than it is a creative, although that's not totally true. You have to be able to edit it so it looks creative, at least. In the personality profile, you are using the individual's quote, like if Anne says something, I will use her quotes. But at the same time, she'll say something else, and I'll say, hmm, that's not really a great quote. I can use this in my narrative now. So in other words, I, I go third person and uh, use it in my narrative, and then I'll come back, and then she has a great quote. And usually you feel, if you're go when you use quotable material uh, in painting this personality portrait, those quotes should be the best quotes, and then your narrative should be the material that bridges that, that that person also said, but use it as a bridge, use it as your own narrative. You can tell your story in the first person. Sometimes I'll start, I walked in the front door and I saw this person. Sometimes you can use it in the third person. I use a lot of second person. I'll say, you walk in and see this person to try to get the reader inside the picture also. And then paint, I mean, I'll have to look at the way that Anne is dressed, I'll look at the way her hair is, and I'll try to describe that in the article, too. I have to also give a visual portrayal of her as, rather, uh, as well as a verbal portrayal when I do that. Plan a long-winded answer, wasn't it? Yes, thank you. Blunders, if share my blunders? Well, uh, I should say not. There occasionally are sometimes you will ask a question. Uh, I, I save, like I say, the embarrassing questions to the end. <laughs> I don't think I had any embarrassing questions to ask Anne. But I remember when I just recently did Don Murray, uh, I asked him a question about his first marriage. And he didn't even open his mouth. And he stood up when I said, do you have any studio portraits that I might be able to take along to show the editor goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that ended the conversation. He did not want to talk about it. When I walked into Julia Child's house, uh, an amazing thing happened. As soon as I, as I walked in the front door on Julia Child, here's this towering six-foot-two woman. She grabs my hand, propels me into the living room. Um, this marvelous, massive person with this uh, voice, uh, this chortle that could curdle cooling baronets or something. Uh, just as I walked in, the oven man walked out of the kitchen, and the oven didn't work. Not only did one oven didn't work, but two ovens didn't work. Not only didn't the ovens work, the whole kitchen ranges didn't work. So there I was to have lunch with Julia, and we didn't have an oven. We had a marvelous lunch anyway. She happened to have some cold quail. Um, <laughs> but how was I going to start the article? Obviously, I would start it with the oven man popping out as I popped in. Oh, by the way, she served me a little brown sauce, kind of a muckle-dung color thing for the quail, and she called it a loose mousse. I kind of like that. <laughs> Which was in the article, somewhere in there. So, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, did I do anything for you? You know, amazingly enough, when you're talking to someone, they like to talk about themselves. And I'll, I want Anne to answer this for, for sure, too. 
To get started in the beginning, uh, I try to find their interest if I can. First of all, their interest. What are they interested in? I'll ask them about those interests. Those are effective to get started. Uh, I always joke about when I interviewed, interviewed Barney, you know, if you ask the first right question, then you'll never have to ask another question, right? You can go for the two hour and a half. When I asked Barney, the first question I asked him was, who was a better matador, Barnaby Conrad or Manalete? And about three hours later, you know, we finished up with that question. So you have to have that first. But one of the questions always is solid. I have to ask the person about their life. Like, when did it begin? And if they start, I was born in 1958, then you take it from there. I don't know. What do you feel about that? Uh, do you like to be quest asked questions about your life? As, don't you like to talk about... Maybe Anne doesn't like to talk about herself. I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> That's an embarrassing moment. Uh, I think my sick syntax was so slurred that uh, I have no idea what the question was. Could we go have coffee See, somewhere? That's, now, that, that's how he gets a story, because you begin to feel sorry for him, and you offer him something, you see. There are all kinds of techniques, and that's one of Cork's techni techniques. Uh, really? Don't you think so? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Be a little vulnerable. Yes, Morgan. Oh, my. Come, in on, was, come in on crutches. Okay. You, you wanted him to, uh, to give his best questions, right? Okay. I did. What was it? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, Catherine, I hope that answered your question. Let's move right along now, folks. <laughs> Back there, yes. As your technique and training as a writer make it easier or more difficult to get into the mystical concept? Oh, a connection between writing and the oh, mysticism? I think that uh, everyone who, who is creative... Uh, um, a writer, uh, uh, an, an actress, uh, a musician, a painter, uh, has relied from the very beginning, whether they may consciously realize it or not, on that, that inner um, special talent that is, is, is in all of us, but we, we learn to tune into it, to, to go with it. Um, we allow it to happen through us. Um, creativity is constant and, and everywhere. It's just really opening up to it. So to say whether writing comes before acting or acting before writing, I think, I think they go together. I think a, a writer and an actor both have to have um, a highly developed um, capability to, to image and to, to, to feel, to, to picture, to allow these things to come up through them, mm. either through the hand with the, with the pen or through voice and body on a stage. It's a dipping into that m magical, universal, subconsciousness that is there and holds all, all of it for us. And at times, the genius of it will come through us if we keep turning to it. And those special times are incredible. Mm -hmm. Those are the, the really uh, wonderful works that have continued down through, through this, the centuries because they have touched into such a depth of, of, of truth that they're irrefutable. And you see it happen to uh, an, an actor on stage. A few years ago, um, I saw Virginia Woolf with um, um, uh, Arthur Hill and, um, yes, Uta Hagen. And the first act, it was amazing, they'd been playing it for a long time at the, by this, this period. And the first act, I as an actress knew they were both on stage. They were playing the roles, but there was nobody here. Mm. And that, that's a terrible trap that can happen to any actor. And everything was fine. Vocally, you know, uh, everything was fine, except that I knew they weren't on stage. I knew that their minds were either checking off a market list or something else. They, were, they had become so used to doing this. And 
at the beginning of the second act, about five or six minutes into the second act, I saw something happen in Uta Hagen's eyes. I saw her, like, suddenly come to. She realized what had been going on. And she came to life. All of her was there. And Arthur Hiller picked it up just like that, and he was there. And the second act was absolutely incredible because they had tuned back in. Yeah to what they knew as actors they, they, they must do in order to let this really move full force through them with uh, complete honesty.
Repeat the question. I mean, Anne. Uh, uh, yes. What was the experience that I may have had that made me feel that the book was worth writing? Uh, well, it was having people come up and say, where's the book that made me do it? <laughs> it's funny because I hadn't, I, I hadn't really planned to do more than just sort of put these things together for my own um, reflections. And uh, that was what made me finally put them together and, and, and uh, get, get into uh, its, its being published. What has driven me, I, I think, primarily is the need to share. And the realization that every one of us uh, has so many levels going on within us and that we haven't until the last few years begin to open up and share these things with each other to realize that we are not indeed alone in areas that were n not discussed in the past. Hmm. Yes. Well, no, Anne, what, uh, as far as having a tape recorder, of course, I feel that an interviewer should carry a tape recorder. Uh, it's easier to listen to what's going on. And Anne mentioned, as I have discovered on uh, several personalities I've interviewed, they like to have a tape recorder, too, and they turn it on. Because, you see, you take your tape and you carry it home and burn it if you have to. But, uh, in other words, if they have a copy of the tape recording, and I'm sure this is what Anne was talking about, if she has a copy, a separate copy, then I really have a difficult time writing anything out of context, you know, because it could be proved on the tape. There have been some uh, rather large legal battles that uh, happened. I think uh, uh, Sports Illustrated had to pay off one of the race car drivers about $75,000 because the interviewer did not have a tape recorder with him and they could not prove that a certain quote was said, which was libelous. So tape recorders are sometimes handy for both sides of uh, the interviewing picture. Yes? Have you ever been in an Any problems ever going into an interview situation where you could not get the in interviewee uh, to cooperate with you? Not really serious. Uh, admittedly, some uh, people I've interviewed have been a little bit reluctant uh, through, I don't know, and perhaps there is a little fear uh, I know I've tried to get an interview with uh, Jane Fonda, and she's been over-interviewed so much anyway, I don't have any idea what I would ask her, because she's been asked everything under the sun. And she's, uh, is, anyway, she appears to be a person, uh, well, I don't want to get in, uh, discuss that. No, I really have had no serious problems with anyone. I, I just think so, because uh, I try to be congenial enough and friendly enough and have established what I was going to do before I went in the interview and shown them material of mine that I've written so that they're not going to be raked over the coals and they know that. Once an individual accepts uh, the interview, I think you've got it pretty well made at that point if you carry out what you're doing professionally. You agree, Anne? Yeah, I think uh, maybe the basic problem is if you have an interviewer who comes in and says, now, wouldn't you say that... <laughs> and you say, no, I, I, I wouldn't... Uh, say that no you know when you have someone who is doing that it's very difficult and it turns you off as a as someone who is being interviewed because you realize that they again they have their own slant and they're trying to put words into your mouth um, for their purposes that's very true that's a good important point a writer generally goes into an interview or any type of writing they do with a slant a mental slant, at least perhaps a prepared slant on the questions that they're going to ask. That slant, when I do the interview, may change during the interview itself, or it may even change during the writing because of the material that I get. But I do go in with some preconceived notion I have to be very, very careful of that I don't dwell too hard on that notion because it might focus... It's outlining. Yeah. It's, it's, it's outlining, it's and, and you outline. can miss so much if you do outline. Yeah. You have to be a little bit careful on that. I usually list about seven or eight questions uh, that are more or less toward the slant that I have in mind, but I'm willing to break those rules because I listen, and then I ask... I never... I take in my notebook and I generally don't even open it, but it'll be there. I've looked over the questions. I know what they are. I never look at it again once an interview has started, except at the very end, I'll just stop, let the interviewee have time to relax for a moment and say, if you don't mind, I'd like to check my notes to see if there's anything that I've left out. And usually at that point, they just keep on talking anyway. And you check your notes. You know you're through at that point, And it's an hour and a half, and you leave. Yes, I hope that answered that question here first. How do you get started as an interviewer? 
And well, how do you get started as an interviewer? I, I might be a little facetious if I say go out and interview somebody, but I think that's the way to get started. Uh, writers in my classes here at uh, uh, in Santa Barbara, in my, the writing classes I teach at the University in uh, Adult Education for City College, uh, a lot of them do do interviews now. One re uh, young writer is doing marvelously well. I didn't realize that Santa Barbara was uh, the orchid capital of this coast. And uh, he started interviewing all of the orchid growers. And he sold magazine ar articles all over the place My now gosh. on uh, orchid growers. He started out, you know, you don't have to start with celebrities. You know, um, I've started interviewing some theater directors in the beginning and a couple uh, winemakers and then some winos and, you know, and, uh, and then the first thing you know, you're doing interviews all over the place and you just have to start somewhere. Go, go interview the person next to you. No, that's not a very pa fascinating person. Somebody else, you know, go find somebody and interview them. Yes. Yes. Well, she's, what makes Barbara, Barbara Walters is, prepares, I think, uh, herself amazingly well. And she's also got a lot of crew behind her. The ability to edit what you see as an edited version that makes it look very fine. But she's very perceptive. I think she's extremely perceptive. Preparation and perception. And she's one of the best listeners around. I really think listening. Bill you who's one of the greatest television interviewers. He's a Canadian. His name is Brian Linehan. Yeah, yeah. He is absolutely, without doubt, incredible. And he is so tuned in to his subject mm -hmm. before he starts. And that's not an edited show. That's a full hour live. Mm -hmm. and, and it is taped as well. But, I mean, it, he is absolutely amazing. Just yep. amazing. But he, 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 he kind of, um, he unites with his subject. He is so tuned in like uh, a marvelous analyst mm -hmm. with but he has heart with it you see he doesn't want to trap his subject into saying something um, that will hurt that yeah. subject you feel gentle in his hands but he has tremendous power to really pull the essence of your being out on, on, on that film he's amazing I, know I think Barbara Walters is yeah. more looking for um, uh, a, a tag, uh, 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 a kind of let's wrap it up and this is what the person is kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's sort of a squashed-in feeling a, that most, uh, yeah, most TV interviewers have. Very definitely a formula have. on her. Yeah. I know, I've been on the other, other side of the interview process also as an interviewee, and one of the worst experiences I had was a young journalist interviewed me about some of my writing, did not have a tape recorder, had a notebook, and sat down there as we were talking, and he looked constantly at me and wrote, and never looked at where he was writing. I had no idea how he did that, you know? But it really irritated me because I didn't know whether he was staying in the lines, you know. Uh, I had no idea whether he could read what he was written right afterwards, or, you know. And then, of course, when the piece came out, it was a piece of hogwash, too. Take a tape recorder along. Don't do, don't do that. Don't stare at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's yeah. irritating. I think you can't be that way. You have to be very careful as an interviewer. Question back there. I have received some... Some, the question in, some incredible letters, uh, really goosebumpy letters uh, that have, have pleased me greatly. Uh, I, 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 I won't repeat them, but it, it, has, it has meant a great deal. It has meant a great deal to me that I have touched other people and that through our, our minds we have made uh, a very beautiful communication and that it has been of some importance to them at a certain time in, in their lives. Uh, yes, it's meant a lot to me, just, just for those letters. I think we have time for a few more questions and we'll have to call it quits, yes. There is this feeling, like many of us have known you almost since you were there. That's true, I know. Continuing to 
Thank you. Alive and well in Santa Barbara, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope all of you heard that. It was an excellent comment. Unfortunately, I couldn't repeat it as Thank well. You. Thank you. Thank you. A couple more questions. We'll call quits. Yes. And is there a particular stage role that you haven't played that you would dearly love to play? A stage role that Anne has not played. Uh, by the way, that's always one of the questions I ask celebrities. Is there any role that you, you haven't get, played? Do you ever get a specific answer? And I get lousy answers. Oh, I did. James Brolin one time said he wanted to play the hunchback of Notre Dame, and so I titled the article, The Hunkback of Notre Dame. <laughs> so. Um, no, I can't honestly say that there is any one particular uh, role. I, I love, I really love comedy, and I love anything that has to do with a man's potential, his, his, his great potential, or the conflict that goes on inside of us, you know, because we are constantly going through this every single day. We are going through the materialistic versus what our basic inner truths may be, whatever they may be. Uh, those conflicts, uh, the the inner struggle and and growth that that uh, uh, man is 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 having to go through, things of that sort are are exciting to me. Uh, that's what I would like to do more of. Right now, there. Do you know what I think? I think the mafia has bought over the film industry. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> no, that's, a on that, folks. that's an inner thought. And there's one person out there who agrees with me. No, I really think so. I think that uh, we, we uh, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it hurts me so deeply in, in, inside because there's only so much a parent can do with their children. There's only so much you can do at home with love and with values and uh, with, with trying to give them something to hold on to uh, for those years ahead when you're not going to be here and you're going to be moving on to your next step. And doggone it, we are so bombarded by the, the horrendous things in, in television. You got me started. <laughs> right, started. This started. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's, just, it's just awful to me. And, and someone has sold out. More than one person has sold out in the industry. And that's my conviction, because you cannot tell me that, that, that what, what is coming on the screen today is entertainment. It's, it's reveling in, in it's voyeurism, and, and, and it's, it's a bloodbath. And I'm, I, for one, am sick of it, and I want to get involved with more. You started it. <laughs> Comedy, caring, loving, producing decent things. That's what I'd, I'm hoping. But as an actress, I also have to make a living. So believe me, it ain't easy. I still have a home and two children. And it's like, you know, which is the least bad of the baddest? Mm. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's tough. It's tough. Okay. Question? Yes. <laughs> I think we could. <laughs> we got riled up here. What three? Th if you had three wishes, what three things would you do to improve the world? Uh, I usually settle that down to one question, but you can do one. Okay. First thing, uh, have a universal language. Um, second thing would be to stop all of the silliness of separation uh, uh, of. Uh, a need to try to have everybody else believe the way we do in religious fashion and come to the realization that whatever each one of us uh, believes is uh, precious to us. We don't have to push it onto anyone else. They have a right to believe what they wish as long as we're all on the same road and we're all going to one place and there is one supreme being out of whom we have all come. I, that I would sure hope I could help educate people into coming into that realization. And... Um, Boy, if we had those two, those two things licked, uh, 
I don't think we'd 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 have any 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 other problems. Um, those those are the two main ones. Third wish, I guess, would be for all of us to know that we have come out of love and that we are all out of one creator. Therefore, we are all precious to each other, and it does matter what happens to each one of us. And on that note, we'll end. Thank you very much, and Francis. Dear. And this concludes the recording on tape number two to the 12th annual Santa Barbara Writers' Conference.